MacCast, Sunday, January 9th, 2022. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is the show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How you doing? Welcome back to the MacCast. Hey, glad to be back here with you for Another episode of Apple Mac news, hints, tips, tricks, all the goings-ons in the Apple community. How you doing? Hopefully you are having a wonderful day, whatever day that might be. I never know when people are listening to this show. Some people listen right away. Some people you may be getting to this weeks later. I have literally no idea. That's the beauty of podcasting, I guess, right? You get to listen to the show when and where and if and when you want to do you want to and that is awesome regardless i am glad to be back here with you and we have a ton of things to talk about it is amazing going through the show notes a lot has happened in the past week kind of a great way to kick off the new year and i hope i hope you are also having a wonderful new year we're going to talk about a number of things today including Updates to AirPods Pro. We're going to dig into a big week of Apple AR VR headset news. We're going to talk about upcoming iPhones. We're going to talk about upcoming Apple Silicon processors and Macs, Apple displays. We've got Apple TV Plus news, of course, with uh, some big name stars in there. And that will kind of round out the news for this week. And then we're going to dig into some of your feedback. I have a car question uh, related to CarPlay and, and Wi-Fi. Uh, we're going to talk about cleaning up your passwords, something you might want to do here at the beginning of the year. We've got a question related to that. We're going to help protect you from a new form of spam, and I'll tell you what that is in a little bit. And then we have a thing of the moment from a listener, actually a really cool one, uh, product and technology that I have used myself and really do enjoy. So should be a feature-packed episode. I say we just dive right in and kick things off with discussion of Apple's new AirPods, or potentially new upcoming AirPods Pro 2s. Uh, thanks to everyone's favorite Apple analyst, Ming-Chi Kuo, we have new information that says that Apple is hoping to bring support for Apple lossless ALAC files, audio files, to a future version of the AirPods, the next generation of AirPods Pro. And they also say that uh, it will come with an update to the case that will allow it to actually make a sound so you can find your AirPods. If you've ever tried, I think, using the Find My app with your current AirPods, you know how hit and miss it can be with finding the earbuds. When it does work, for me, it is awesome. It emits the little sound and you can find them. But often I found I don't get any sound. I don't know about you, but it doesn't always seem to work. And very often what I'm looking for is not the AirPods themselves, the individual buds, but I want to know where the AirPods are, like the entire thing. I want to find the case. You've put it down somewhere. You've forgotten where in your house it is. And uh, so this is a killer feature. I think this is going to be a better feature than finding the uh, the AirPods pods the airbuds themselves what do we call them airbuds airpods i don't know air buddies anyway uh, it will have a little speaker on it and you'll be able to connect it up to find my and use the find my network to have it play a sound in the case and that would be very very cool so i am definitely looking forward to this update um one problem though with the lossless and this was something that was brought up by gary uh Geeves, Apple's vice president of acoustics recently in an interview that he did, uh, he said that Apple's engineers would like, quote, like more bandwidth than what is available with Bluetooth uh, than what it currently offers. And that is because the best data rate today that you can get with Bluetooth is around two megabits per second. And that's with the enhanced data rate. And in re in the real world, that data rate actually tends to be somewhere more around one megabit per second. And lossless audio needs about double that data rate to be able to be transferred. So it's going to be a bit of an engineering challenge to get support for Apple lossless. Uh, it's believed, 
that the limited bandwidth is actually one of the reasons why the current AirPods actually don't support lossless codecs. And it remains to be seen if AirPods 2 will somehow leverage some sort of tweak with Bluetooth for lossless or if Apple's engineering team is going to come up with some alternative solution. Now, one option could be for Apple to develop a lossless CD quality codec like Qualcomm's aptX lossless format, but that's only 16-bit 44.1 kilohertz, so exactly CD quality, and that would likely be seen as unacceptable, uh, an unacceptable compromise, I think, for most audiophile and tech community people, and I think really not up to Apple's standards. I think if they're going to do lossless, they're going to do full support for the lossless codec, and they will figure out some way to do it. Now, whether that happens to be in the AirPods 2, Ming-Chi quote seems to think they've figured something out. So we'll have to wait and see on that. A few other tidbits related to the AirPods Pro 2. From prior rumors, we believe that they are going to have a redesign, possibly with no stems, something similar to the Beats Fit Pros that Apple's released. We've also had rumors that Apple may try to add in some additional health sensors to link up with HealthKit and uh, provide additional data for the Health app. So that's what should be coming with AirPods Pro 2s. Now, when we will actually see them, it might be a little bit of a wait. Digitimes claims that suppliers are beginning to line up shipments now, and we are expecting an announcement and a launch in the second half of this year. So it's going to be a few months away. Maybe that'll give Apple engineers a bit more time to figure out that lossless thing. Um, but I know a lot of folks are very excited about AirPods Pro 2, and uh, we'll see those in the back half of the year, hopefully. A lot of buzz this week going on around Apple's AR VR headset rumors. Let's start things off with display supply chain they released a paper with their 2022 predictions for what uh, they think apple is going to be coming out with this is ross young the display analyst and they also discussed in that what they believed was going to happen with apple's upcoming ar vr headset now the new revelation that was in this paper was that the headset would actually have three displays not just two. Originally, a lot of the rumors had claimed there were going to be two 8K Sony displays. This latest rumor says it's actually going to be two 4K displays, 1.4-inch micro OLED displays, and those would be used for the VR. And then they're expecting an AMOLED display for low-resolution peripheral vision, and this would be used for a pass-through AR mode to kind of put the, I would imagine... UI up off to the side of what you are seeing, and it would be a little bit lower resolution. So that's a little bit of a change in what we were expecting from the headset. Another thing related to the lenses that came out this week was that Ming-Chi Kuo said the headset would feature two 3P pancake lenses and that these would use a folded design to allow light to reflect back and forth between the display and the lenses. And according to Quo, he says this design would allow Apple to reduce the headset weight and make them more compact. And that was a rumor we'd been hearing a lot about, that engineering really wants a lightweight headset, something that is not going to be too cumbersome. So apparently this technology will help enable that. Moving back to the supply display supply chain paper, that piece also seemed to back up some of the earlier versions of this rumor where we've heard that the headset is really going to be aimed at the high end. They're thinking developers and professionals who work in the field of AR and VR, and that's because it's expected to come with a very high price tag, at least in the first version we're hearing it's expected to come in at around $3,000 US, and I would assume that's a starting price, and there's probably options that could go even higher than that. The paper also claims that the headset will have multiple cameras to enable hand tracking, possibly LiDAR sensors. I would imagine that it would almost have to, especially for the VR stuff, and that Apple will likely include a powerful CPU and GPU in the headset. And so 
that begs the question, will it be standalone or will it have to be tied to an iPhone? And I think there's still some back and forth on that. But I think if Apple can go with a low power CPU GPU in the headset, have it be standalone, that would be the most ideal situation. And I think they are probably targeting that. And then in his newsletter this week, Mark Gurman said that the metaverse is not something that Apple is interested in, at least not at the moment. He says his sources have told him metaverse is, quote, off limits internally at Apple, meaning that Apple's mixed reality headset is really not a place that Apple wants you to go to escape into like an all day virtual environment but rather they're targeting the device as a place that you would drop into uh, for doing experiences like gaming or communication or content consumption. So really not like escaping into a whole nother world. It's actually something that you would go to kind of like, I assume, looking at your iPhone display occasionally to get updated on information, play a game, maybe communicate with friends through chat or FaceTime, something like that. So they're really seeing it as these intermittent experiences and not an all-day experience. As far as when we're expecting to see the AR VR headset, it's expected to come out in the second half of 2022, though it could potentially be, and this is what we're starting to hear, be debuted to developers at the Worldwide Developer Conference. So maybe they will announce it, kind of bring it out for developers to start getting ready to develop software and applications for it, build it into their applications, and then we would potentially have a later launch date, probably toward the end of the year, I would imagine, in the fall. So I'm getting a little bit more excited about this product, although I don't think I'm in that group, that first target group. And especially not at that price tag, I can't see really spending that amount, uh, except maybe uh, just to review it for the show. But man, that's a hefty price tag. So I'm curious, how many people in the community are excited about a $3,000 AR VR headset? I guess it's really going to come down to what are the applications? What can I do with it on day one? And I still think that's going to take a little while to figure out. I'm not sure they're going to have killer consumer applications out on day one, especially if they're targeting more of the high end of the market and developers, but we'll have to wait and see. Who knows, maybe the first version will even be more like a developer kit, something like that, again, so that developers can start building experiences and applications for it. And uh, that would be perfect for an announcement at Worldwide Developer Conference. So excited to see this coming this year. Hopefully Apple can pull it off, as always, depending on how things go you know, they could always push it too. So we'll just have to wait and see. But I would be very curious to hear your thoughts and opinions on the AR VR headset. Are you getting more excited now that we're in the year when Apple might release the first version? Shoot me an email, send me an audio comment, maccast at gmail.com. So the notch going away on the iPhone, that could happen this year, potentially at least for the Pro model. We've talked about this a little bit so far on the MacCast, but we're, we're continuing to hear more rumors pointing to at least the iPhone Pro models this year ditching the notch. Bloomberg's Mark Gurman said in a newsletter that at least some of this year's models will have a hole-punch display design. That's where you just have a tiny hole in the display for the camera, and The claim was also backed up this past week by Apple Twitter leaker at Dylan DKT, who claims that the iPhone 14 Pro will actually feature a pill-shaped camera cutout. So not just a single point, but actually a pill-shaped cutout. Not really sure why. Maybe to accommodate a few other sensors or at least one other sensor, although he did reconfirm that it's expected that the Face ID sensors will be under display. So maybe it's just to be a little bit different so Apple's phone doesn't look like every other phone out there. Would be an odd decision to do it just for that reason. Um, But uh, sounding like it could be a little bit of a pill shape rather than just a simple hole punch. Meanwhile, we're still expecting an update to the iPhone SE this year. And I guess I must have missed this one, but according to, again, at Dylan DKT, 
He said a redesigned version of the iPhone SE, similar to the iPhone XR 11 design, was planned, but with a smaller screen, and that that is now being pushed back to 2024. That seems really far off to me for just an iPhone SE update, especially just a redesign. But uh, I guess that's what's happening. Again, I hadn't heard this rumor before, but he did say that this year's model is expected to be the same design as the current SE, which I think is based on the iPhone 8, if I'm remembering correctly, but with a 5G and a spec bump, uh, meaning essentially an updated processor. This is all stuff that we talked about previously, so this is kind of where the rumors have been in my mind, and that's fully what I would expect Apple to release, and it is supposed to happen sometime in the first half of this year. Mark Gurman actually believes that Apple's first virtual event for 2022 will be scheduled for March or April. It's likely going to focus on that iPhone SE update, but could also include updates to the MacBook Air, Mac Mini, and the entry-level MacBook Pro, the announcement of the M2, the next generation of the M1 processor, could also possibly be used to debut the 27-inch iMac Pro that we've been talking about here on the MacCast, although Apple could hold that off for an event later this year, maybe as they near Worldwide Developer Conference. I think I mentioned this theory in the last episode of the MacCast, just a personal theory, because we're also expecting them to release an updated updated version of the Mac Pro, and the Pro systems would make more sense to be around Worldwide Developer Conference because that's, you know, basically the target market for those products. So have some consumer products here at the front uh, first half of the year, and then those pro products right around Worldwide Developer Conference seems to make sense to me. It's not historically how Apple has released these products, but hey, they can always change things. So we'll have to wait and see on that. We will get to see pretty soon how iPhone sales did because Apple is planning to hold their first quarter 2022 earnings call on January 27th. But Wedbush analyst Daniel Ives this week thinks he has a line on how Apple might just have done over the holiday period. His numbers look like a good sign for Apple despite supply chain issues and chip shortages. Now, he did note that for December, demand outstripped supply by about 12 million units. So Apple's numbers could have been even better, but he's still backing up his original prediction that Apple could have sold more than 40 million iPhone 13 models for the quarter, and that would be a record. Now, those numbers might not be too surprising considering the popularity of the iPhone, at least among U.S. teens. There was a new survey out this week from Piper Sandler that claimed that 87% of teens in the U.S. now own an iPhone, and that 88% plan to make the iPhone their next phone purchase as well. The piece also noted that teens very much like the Apple Watch. As a matter of fact, it claims that Apple Watch is their favorite smartwatch. We continue to see reports that Apple is experimenting with foldable phone designs, but chances of actually seeing one anytime soon are relatively small. We've talked about this in previous episodes of the MacCast as well. Not so sure about foldable phones myself, and it seems like Apple may not be as well. Basically, Apple doesn't see a market for the for a foldable phone at the moment, outside it being a fad, and seem to be a little bit worried that the the obsession or the fascination with that technology could fade. Uh, They also seem to think that the technology comes with a little bit too many compromises. Basically, the big ones are that the current tech, as we know, has some issues with longevity and display quality, although it is getting better with the more recent phone designs. But the idea in my mind of an iPhone with a plastic display just feels kind of gross, right? We're so used to glass and metal, those high-end materials, and having a plastic display, I just don't know if Apple could adapt to that. You also have the issues of giving up things like water and dust resistance, uh, although that is improving as well, but it's something that Apple has worked very, very hard to drastically improve on the iPhone over the years, and I'm not sure they're quite ready to let that go. As of right now, if Apple does end up doing a foldable foldable design, most experts think it's a little ways off that at least 
2023 at the soonest and maybe even into 2024. And again, it might be that that fad just kind of fades away. I don't think there's a lot of people buying foldable phones. I could be wrong on this, but I haven't seen personally any out in the wild. I know they're selling them. I just haven't personally run across one. So again, I'd always be curious to know what you think about Apple doing a foldable design, but not something that I have a lot of desire for right now, especially again, if I'm going to have to give up some of the quality of materials and more importantly, some of the protections like water and dust resistance. But what's your opinion? Send me an email, shoot me an audio comment, maccast at gmail.com. As I noted a little bit earlier, we are expecting Apple to release the next generation of the M1 processor. Currently in the rumor community, uh, dubbed the M2, which seems logical. It could be arriving this year in the form of an updated MacBook Air with what some are calling the biggest redesign in the product's history. It's expected, expected to have a thin non-tapered design it will likely come in colors like the 24 inch iMac with the off-white bezels we're expecting two Thunderbolt 4 USB 4 ports and MagSafe coming back to the MacBook Air which will be a nice addition and the display coming with a notch like the more recent MacBook Pro updates that would include a 1080p FaceTime camera and some of the rumors have noted possibly finally adding support for center stage, something I thought would have been part of the MacBook Pro update, but didn't come to fruition. As far as the internals and the processor itself, Mark Gurman thinks the new processor will, will offer a, quote, marginally faster processor. He says it will continue to feature a 8-core CPU, just like the M1, but Apple would kick up the GPU to 9 cores or 10 cores versus the 7 or 8 core options that we have today. The M2 should likely also come with updates to the Mac Mini and the entry-level MacBook Pro. And again, I'm kind of expecting that that might happen here in the first half of the year. Also remember, too, that we are expecting an update to the iMac, a 27-inch version of the iMac, with likely an M1 Pro and M1 Max, just like the MacBook Pro models that were released last year. And we're still waiting on the Apple Silicon update to the Mac Pro. Now, German mentioned the possibility of a smaller Mac Pro design this year with up to 40 CPU cores and 128 graphics cores. That's something we've been talking about recently. Basically, Apple is going to double up on the M1 Max chip and then quadruple up on the M1 Max chip to achieve those designs. Now, one other interesting thing that Mark German mentioned that plays into how quickly we might see these Mac updates is that he thinks that Apple will have fully completed the transition to Apple Silicon by this year's Worldwide Developer Conference. That means in the first half of the year, we do have to get the update to the Mac Pro. So that kind of falls in line with my theory about the timeline because we haven't heard a lot yet about when the Mac Pro update would happen, but this would mean it would need to happen by the end of the first half of the year, and that puts it firmly around that June time frame. So we are going to have to wait and see if that comes to fruition, but interesting nonetheless. Meanwhile, on the competitive side, Intel has announced its 12th generation mobile processors, and they are making some big claims. They claim that the new Core i9 will be the, quote, fastest mobile processor ever, essentially touting that it's going to best Apple's new M1 Max chips. And while it's looking like technically that is true on paper, there are definitely some caveats, and they come in the form of power and efficiency. The Core i9 has speeds up to 5 gigahertz, comes with 14 cores, with 6 high-performance cores and 8 energy-efficient efficient cores, but the Core i9 uses up to 115 watts of power, while Apple's M1 Max chip maxes out at about 90 watts, and most of the time it's running around 60 watts, so almost half the power of uh, the new Core i9. So while 
in gaming laptops and you know large PCs, it's probably going to be able to best Apple's M1 Max. I would not expect it to see any kind of designs that are similar to Apple's ultra-thin MacBook Pros. They're just not going to be able to squeeze that kind of power uh, out of that without having some massive cooling uh, to kind of keep things under control. So we'll have to wait and see. But, you know, Intel pushing back on Apple quite a bit. And to that end, one win that Apple, that Intel rather, did achieve this week was getting Apple Silicon Lead and T2 security processor developer Jeff Wilcox to come back to Intel. The engineer posted on his LinkedIn page, quote, After an amazing eight years, I have decided to leave Apple and pursue another opportunity. That opportunity is with Intel. Wilcox will oversee all Intel system-on-a-chip designs as an Intel fellow and chief technology officer of the design and engineering group. He had left Intel in 2013 to come to Apple to work on the Apple Silicon processor and uh, I guess now is going back to help Intel. So interesting turn of events, to say the least. Sometimes I really hate it when something I say or think turns out to potentially be true. This is regarding the Apple display that we've been talking about, where we've been expecting an updated version, a at least lower cost version of the Apple display. And I think the first time I talked about this story on the MacCast, I figured it would be around two, $3,000 for that display. And then I had a listener come correct me and say, hey, that seems crazy. That seems like way too expensive for a consumer display. Wouldn't we expect something more around $1,000 where Apple had been, especially considering the prices of the 24-inch iMac and the idea that the new display is supposed to be based partially, at least on that 24-inch iMac design? Well, This week, Mark Gurman came out with his note and said that he expects a new display to come from Apple and that the price would be about half the price of Apple's professional Pro Display XDR. Now, previous rumors, like I said, had claimed Apple's next display would be more quote-unquote consumer-focused and based on the 24-inch iMac and Pro Display XDR designs. Now, considering the Pro Display XDR sells for $4,999.99. I'm not so sure how consumer a uh, $2,500 display feels, but if that turns out to be the price, I guess it's technically more affordable than the Pro Display XDR, although I don't know how many of us are going to be rushing out to buy a $2,500 display. That would be still, I think, targeted very much at uh, Pro's. I guess specs are going to come down to uh, a lot of it as well. But I think many of us would hope that Apple could offer something more in the form of a new display that would bring us back to the days of the $999 Apple Thunderbolt display that they discontinued that everybody loved. I read a piece on 9to5Mac that I think sort of hit the nail on the head. Apple could very easily take the 4.5, 5K 24-inch iMac display, which is a gorgeous display, drop the chin off of that and just sell that as a standalone display for about $999. And I think a lot of people would be very, very happy. And considering the fact that the 24-inch iMac starts at $1299 US, that would be a great profit for them. You can drop 300 bucks off the uh, low-end iMac and sell it as a display only, I have to imagine that they would do very, very well with that. But we're going to have to wait and see what Apple actually does. German does say he hopes that Apple would release the new display this year. And that's another bit of a disappointment if that turns out to be true, because he says he hopes they'll do it this year. We were kind of thinking it would almost be a certainty that Apple would have a new display this year. But I guess we're going to have to wait and see. And then wrapping up the news for this week, we have a few Apple TV Plus stories, starting with Brad Pitt. It seems like Apple is very likely to close a deal for a new film starring Brad Pitt. Apple supposedly beat out the other streaming services to pick up the new movie about Formula One racing. The film is a Jerry Bruckheimer production 
and will be directed by Joseph Kosinski, who did Top Gun Maverick, according to Deadline. In the film, Brad Pitt plays a racer who comes out of retirement to mentor a younger driver. Apple also announced that they will be bringing a new True Crime limited TV series to Apple TV Plus called Manhunt. The series will actually be part historical fiction, part conspiracy thriller, and focuses on the search for John Wilkes Booth after the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln. The series will be directed by Emmy-nominated director Carl Franklin, who is known for Mindhunter, and written and produced by Monica Bletsky of Fargo and Friday Nights, who has had Emmy, Golden Globe, PGA, and WGA nominations. It's also based on the best-selling book written by James Swanson and will star Tobias Menzies, who you may know from The Crown or Game of Thrones, no release date has been announced. Deadline has also reported that Apple has landed a new biopic film about legendary actress Audrey Hepburn. They claim the story is being held, quote, under wraps, so we don't have a lot of details there, but the project will star Oscar-nominated actress Rooney Mara as Hepburn. Mara is also set to produce. The film is written by Michael Mitnick, who is an executive producer on the HBO series Vinyl, and it will be directed by Oscar-nominated filmmaker Luca Guadagnino. And then the last bit of Apple TV Plus news this week, Oprah Winfrey plans to bring a documentary to Apple TV Plus about the late actor Sidney Portier. The legendary actor died just this week at the age of 94, but Oprah's project with Apple actually began production over a year ago with the family participating in the project. Winfrey will be executive producing, and the project is directed by Reggie Hoodlin, who is known for the film's House Party and The Black Godfather. And then I have one last bit of news related to Apple services in general for you this week. The Economist, in a report on the growth of Apple's media services, caused a little bit of stir this week in the community with a single sentence. That sentence was, quote, there is talk of an audiobook service later this year. That's it. Not a lot of details, no sources, and we have to kind of accept it for what it's worth. But the idea here would be that Apple would be bringing out a Apple Books Plus service. And that kind of sounds amazing. The idea is that Apple could potentially offer audiobooks and books as a subscription service something to compete with Kindle Unlimited and Audible. So if you are a book lover, this sounds very exciting. It would be a nice addition to their lineup. It actually makes a lot of sense since Apple already sells books, ebooks, and they sell audiobooks, although I think that deal is through Audible. So it'll be interesting to see how they can manage the licensing on this since they potentially would be a direct competitor to Amazon. Um, but if they can pull it off, I think that would be an awesome addition. And if they can add it to like the Apple One plans, even better. That would be so, so cool. So uh, looking forward to maybe that happening. Uh, but uh, that is going to do it for the news for this week. Before we move on, I do want to take a quick moment and thank a show sponsor. And that is ZocDoc. You know, I am overall a generally healthy person, knock on wood. I tend not to get sick too frequently, but that's why I find it incredibly frustrating that when I do, when I'm actually sick and I need to see a doctor, it's almost impossible to get an appointment. You know, you call, you go online, only to be told that it's going to take weeks or worse, even a month or more to get an appointment. And the point of calling is, hey, I'm sick. I need to see someone now. So if you've experienced this too, I have good news for you. There is a solution, and that is ZocDoc. Just download the free ZocDoc app. It's the easiest way to find a great doctor and instantly book an appointment. With ZocDoc, you can search for local doctors who will take your insurance. You can read verified patient reviews and book an appointment either in person or via video chat and you're never going to have to wait on hold with a receptionist again. Whether you need a primary care physician, a dentist, dermatologist, psychiatrist, eye doctor, or other specialist, ZocDoc has you covered. Go to ZocDoc.com slash MacCast and download the ZocDoc app to sign up for free. 
I've used the ZocDoc app to find physicians and dentists who take my insurance and have appointments available in days, not weeks. It's great. Plus, it also lets me see reviews and comments from other patients so I can feel confident that they will be the right fit for me as well. ZocDoc makes healthcare easy. Now is the time to prioritize your health. Go to ZocDoc.com MacCast and download the ZocDoc app to sign up for free and book a top-rated doctor. Many are available as soon as today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash MacCast. And a big thank you to ZocDoc for their support of the show. Going to kick off the feedback this week with a question from a listener, a technical question related to something that I don't know a whole lot about. I have to admit, has to do with CarPlay, and I have never had a car with CarPlay, uh, specifically wireless CarPlay, but here was the question from Mark. Hey, Adam, Mark Pilgrim from South Africa, longtime listener and fan of the show. Today's question, and I know you always have an answer for us, if not straight away, then down the line after some pondering and possibly some listener contribution. No internet Wi-Fi seems to be one of the latest things at the moment where your phone connects to a device, even such as wireless CarPlay, using more than just Bluetooth, it uses a almost hidden Wi-Fi connection to that device. There's no internet connected to it, but it enables huge data transfer. So I've got wireless CarPlay up and running, but now I've just gone and bought myself an XR dash cam, which does record to an SD card on the device. But for added functionality, they have an app on the phone, which does marvelous things. But you do need to connect to your dash cam using no internet Wi-Fi as well. The dash cam has its own uh, Wi-Fi SSID. So suddenly I'm sitting in the car with two devices that need a Wi-Fi connection. My phone it needs to connect to my car's no internet Wi-Fi for CarPlay, and it needs to connect to the dash cam's no internet Wi-Fi for optimal usage of the Nexar dash cam app. It can't happen. As far as I know, my phone can only connect to one device at a time. So I made the compromise for now by going back to cabling my CarPlay so I don't use the Wi-Fi there. And I'm just connecting to the dash cams, no internet Wi-Fi in order to get that app functionality. Is there a possibility, if not now, do you foresee it happening down the line where as no internet Wi-Fi connections become more and more prevalent because there's such a huge data transfer between gadgets that we could connect to more than one no internet Wi-Fi device at a time, such as my dash cam and my Apple CarPlay, and that would work because at the moment it doesn't. Once again, reiterating, these devices don't connect to my phone's hotspot. It's the other way around. My phone has to connect to their individual Wi-Fi SSIDs. Any advice, suggestions, or even just a chit-chat about it would be appreciated. All the best and have a great 2022. Hey, Mark. Thank you so much for the question. Like I said, I'm not a uh, CarPlay guy at all. So we're probably going to have to turn some of this over to the community. Uh, and then we'll have to correct me if I get this wrong. But, you know, my response is going to be that I believe CarPlay actually connects or your iPhone rather when connecting to CarPlay is actually connecting to your car's Wi-Fi network, right? So your car sets up a Wi-Fi network, you connect to that. And then, like you're saying, the Nexar does a similar thing. The Nexar device sets up its own Wi-Fi network, and it wants you to connect your phone for to that, right? So you have that conflict. But to me, that means the problem seems to be really with how these devices are wanting to connect to Wi-Fi. It should be that the device can connect to a Wi-Fi network. It doesn't matter if it's connected to the internet or not, but some way to configure the device to connect to the Wi-Fi. Now, since in the case of wireless CarPlay, it really is your iPhone connecting to your your car's Wi-Fi network, and a dash cam is something that presumably would be used in a car, it feels to me like Nexar should have the capability or the ability to connect to your car's Wi-Fi as well. And that would solve this problem, right? If the Nexar connects to the car Wi-Fi and your iPhone connects to the car Wi-Fi, 
everything would be able to talk to each other. CarPlay would be able to talk over Wi-Fi. The Nexar would be able to talk over the Wi-Fi. So basically, your car is setting up the Wi-Fi network. That's the Wi-Fi network you're connecting to, just like you would in your home. Your home Wi-Fi network is what you connect all your Wi-Fi devices to. And your iPhone's a device. The Nexar thing is a device, right? And it's connecting to that centralized car network. And that would be the solution. Obviously, it doesn't work that way, at least with the Nexar device. But I have had devices that work like this in the past. So I've personally had devices that set up their own Wi-Fi network so you can do setup and configuration. But what happens is, is you connect to that And then it gives you the ability or some sort of interface to allow that device to be configured to connect to another Wi-Fi network. And that would be the solution, I would think, that Nexar, the app, would give you the ability to connect your Nexar to your car's network, your car's Wi-Fi network. But outside of that, I don't know how you would solve this solution. Uh, I am now curious what killer features the uh, dash cam offers when it's connected to Wi-Fi via your phone, like the app. Uh, I would imagine typically, like you noted earlier, that it would just be for, you know, pulling files off of the SSD, the internal SSD storage or or, uh, SD card storage rather more quickly. But what other amazing features does it do Uh, when it's directly connected to your phone. I'd be curious to know why it needs to be directly connected. That seems a little bit weird to me, but hey, I don't know much about dash cams either. Uh, So, you know, does it need to stream to your phone, the video? And if you're doing that while driving, is that really something you want to see anyway? I don't know. I'm just really curious about that now too. So if you want to respond to that, but I'm going to throw it out to the community. I don't know. Maybe there's some sort of tricky little, you know, Wi-Fi hub or some other way around this that uh, I'm not thinking of. I tried to do a little bit of searching online. I didn't find any answers as well, other than the solution that you've already taken into account, which is connecting the dash cam to your iPhone wirelessly and then your phone to CarPlay wired, which actually sounds like a more reliable connection in my mind anyway. Um, But I know the convenience of just being able to hop in your phone and connect to uh, CarPlay Wi-Fi is much more convenient rather than having to pull out a cable from somewhere, center console or something like that, and plug in. So maybe someone will have a creative solution. I, as you probably (laughs) alluded to, don't at this point. But hey, we'll share anything and any future information on future episodes of the MacCast. Next, I got an email from Ryan. He wrote in this week with some great questions about password management and maybe cleaning up some past bad password behavior. I think this is a great topic for the beginning of the year. We don't talk about this too much. We've talked about password managers and we've talked about, you know, just good password policies and and the importance for security of setting up good passwords. But, you know, Ryan, like a lot of us, myself included, I have to admit this, has a long history with creating accounts and passwords online. And we all may or may not have in the past been as judicious or as secure in this process. You know, a long time ago, we didn't we didn't think about this stuff. So you might have old accounts in there that maybe don't have the best password policies. And Ryan is actually using Apple's Keychain and Safari to store his passwords. Uh, And I assume Ryan iCloud Keychain to keep them in sync across your devices, which is a great way to go. And a nice feature of the current version of Safari is that you can get an audit of your existing passwords. There's a setting you can turn on, then it will tell you if your passwords are secure or not. So if you want to view this, you can open up Safari. If you store your passwords in Safari, go to the preferences, click on the passwords tab. You will have to authenticate to your Mac account to be able to see the passwords. But once you're in there next to passwords, if you have this feature turned on that possibly have an issue, you will see a little caution icon. And then you can click on that password to get details. Things like, is this a reused password? Is it an easily guessed password or has that password been part of a service that has been compromised, had a data breach or something like that? All of those things will show up. Now, it's worth noting, and this goes for all password apps that actually do this, uh, you know, compromised trick. 
it's worth noting that compromised is just a check that that service does to see if a specific service has a breach. So typically, if your email has been part of a breach, they don't have the actual passwords, so they can't validate if your current password is actually on that breached list. Uh, They just assume that it might be. So if you've actually updated your password since that breach happened, you're likely okay in that scenario. But it's not going to be able to determine that, so it'll still warn you. A great example of this is I, I constantly have my password manager telling me that my Adobe password is insecure because Adobe got hacked a long time ago. I've changed the password long since then, um, so it's not really a problem, but it still shows up in that sort of report that I run. So related to all of this, Ryan had a few things that he wanted to know. First, he says, is it a matter of work, you know, like how to fix this? So he identified, his identified, I think, something like 191 of these issues, quote unquote. Uh, and he said, you know, how do I fix it? Is it, a ma- is it a matter of working through each login one at a time and allowing Keychain and Safari to create a new complicated password? And Ryan, yep, it's pretty much it. They actually have a nice convenient button in there that you can click. It'll take you to the service. You can go in and change your password using the features of the Safari keychain. It's the Safari and the keychain to generate that password. That's a great way to go. Of course, you could pick your own if you really want to. Point is, change the password and save it back into your keychain. And then Ryan asks, is the goal to have each and every password be complicated and unique and then rely on the password manager tool to remember it? And that's exactly what you want to do. So with Keychain, what's nice is once you've logged into your Mac, you've unlocked and you have access to all of the passwords in your Keychain. It has nice integration with your Mac and your iOS devices. It is very convenient and it keeps getting better and better the more uh, Apple updates the operating system. They keep improving the built-in password manager. But then Ryan goes on to say, hey, I also have a Windows computer at work and those passwords for my Windows computer are stored in Chrome. So do you have any advice for updating those passwords at the same time? And I would say probably your best bet, the only thing I can think of is to maybe consolidate those first and then move to some sort of system that can sync across your devices. So the first thing to do would be to likely go into Chrome, export the passwords from there as a CSV file. Now, just be aware when you do this, that happens unencrypted. So be very careful with that CSV file that's generated. You want to keep that secure until you get things merged together. But take that file, bring it over to your Mac in a secure fashion, and then import that into Safari. And you can do that by opening up Safari, going into the preferences, clicking on the password tab, again, authenticating into your Mac account. And then down at the bottom of the left-hand column, there's a little dot, dot, dot icon. You can click on that and then choose import passwords and select that CSV file. And that will bring all of your Chrome passwords into uh, Safari. So you can get those merged together and then go through and then do all of your updates in one place. And then, like I said, you will probably want to come up with a solution to sync that. Now, you could manually sync it back. You can export a CSV from Safari with all the merged and updated passwords and bring that into Chrome. But then you're going to be manually updating that back and forth. In my case, and you did ask the question, you know, is there a way to export all of my logins and keychain into a universal password management tool that I can use on both computers, Mac and Windows? And the answer to that is, is absolutely yes. There are a number of apps. Um, my preferred app is 1Password. Uh, full disclosure, they have been a sponsor on the show way in the past. They are not currently a sponsor, but I used them long before they became a sponsor because it's such a great application. And what's awesome is now it supports Mac, iOS, Windows, Android, Linux. I mean, it is fully cross-platform. And it's nice because they have built-in way to import your Safari passwords. You can import your Chrome passwords. You can get everything in one place in a nice, secure system. It has great integration with iOS and your Mac. Again, also Chrome and all the browsers. So it makes it very, very convenient and easy. Now, that's not to say 1Password is the one and only password manager that you can do this with. There are a lot of great third-party apps like 
LastPass, Bitwarden, Dashlane, Keeper. You'll have to look at the features and the pricing. Uh, some of them are free. Some of them are paid for. 1Password is now a subscription app, so some people don't like that. Um, but I think it's I think it's the best password manager on the Mac. Personally, I like the user interface. I just like the convenience. I think it's well worth the money. But that's my personal opinion. So review yours. Uh, there might be others in the community that have great reviews or like other password managers. Um, happy to hear from you. If If you have a favorite, let us know about it. But yeah, you absolutely can get everything merged together. And like I said, I think this is a great time of year to go through and review all that. Another another part of this is probably going and just deleting old accounts that you don't use anymore. I have a bunch in mind, and this is some house cleaning I could stand to do, is get rid of the account. If you're not using it anymore, maybe you want to go back to that service and just close out the account, have them delete it. That way, you're not subject to a data breach if that should happen on that service. And just clean clean things up that way. That's another way to go. And if having everything in a password manager, it is that makes it really easy and convenient to find where all your accounts are. Because honestly, how many of us have probably forgotten about accounts we signed up for years and years ago? I know I have a bunch that I've forgotten about. One last thing to note, just when you're merging the passwords, um, 1Password can only merge your passwords from your keychain and Safari. They do not do because keychain will allow you to store other things like secure notes or credit cards or saved, um, saved con- uh, address information like autofill in information for forms and things like that. That stuff will not get transferred into, um, into one password. I don't know if any of the other third-party apps can actually do that, but I'll just point that out as one limitation. We are just talking about merging uh, login account passwords and those sorts of things for the web. But uh, hopefully that answers your questions. And uh, if other people have tips and tricks for, you know, password management, cleaning up passwords, uh, please let us know, maccast at gmail.com. I also received an email this week from John letting me know about a new kind of spam that he got hit with. And it's technically not a new kind of spam, but, you know, most of us, when we think about spam, we find it in our email, right? We get email spam. But in this case, John was getting spam in his calendar app. As a matter of fact, he said he got 45 in one day. And as I mentioned, this isn't technically new. We ran into this issue back in around 2016 I think we discussed it back then back then what was happening was was spammers were sending emails with calendar invites to people people would accidentally click on them and then it would put an event in their calendar that was actually a spam with spam links and stuff like that this time around it's a little bit more I guess proactive a little bit seedier a similar kind of thing but what's going on is you visit a hacked website or a website that has a link or a bad website and or an app in some cases, I'm hearing, and you're tricked into click, clicking a link and subscribing to a calendar. So maybe they say, hey, you're going to get these kind of calendar updates. Click here to subscribe. You click it. You subscribe to the calendar. And what it actually is is a bunch of spam. And so they start just posting spam events to that calendar and for you they just start popping up and as john noted he got 45 in one day which is crazy the sneaky part about it is once you're subscribed it you can't go into the individual events and actually delete them if you try to do that it's going to tell you you can't because it's not your calendar you've actually subscribed to the calendar so this stuff just keeps popping up now luckily for us it's pretty easy to fix this. All you have to do is unsubscribe from the calendar and then it will delete all of those spam events. So on iOS, you can just open up the calendar app. You can tap on one of the spam calendar events. I know we normally say don't click on spam. In this case, the links are actually in the calendar so don't or in the event. So don't click on any of the links in the event, but you can actually pull up the event in your calendar app. And then there should be an unsubscribe from this calendar button there. And you can just tap that. And then you'll have to confirm you want to unsubscribe. But once you do, that'll clean out all of those spam events. On macOS, it's pretty much similar. You open up the calendar app. 
you look in the left-hand column, find the spam calendar that you subscribed to, Control-click or right-click on that, and then you should be able to choose unsubscribe from the contextual menu. Uh, Confirm you want to unsubscribe, and boom, those will go away. You can also select the calendar from the list, go to the edit menu, and choose delete. That's another way to delete that calendar subscription. So do any one of those things, and that should clean it up. Uh, John actually found this solution himself before I had a chance to reply to him, so good for you, John, and uh, hopefully that will help others out there who might have fallen prey to uh, this little subscription calendar spam thing. So John, thank you for sending that warning in to the community. And then the last thing that I have for you uh, on the MacCast for this week is a thing of the moment. And this one is coming from a listener, Rick. I had thrown out there, uh, we do thing of the moment every once in a while. It's either a great app or a product or something that we're particularly enjoying that we want to share with the community. Um, I typically run these, but at the end of the year this year, I thought, hey, it'd be great if we could get some more of these from our community. And Rick wrote in to say, hey, I recently purchased this product. Uh, It is the TP-Link AV 1300 gigabit pass-through power line AC Wi-Fi kit. I know. TP-Link, they have these wonderful product names. Basically, it is a power line adapter that also serves as a Wi-Fi extender. And we've talked about power line here on the MacCast in the past. I will have a link to this in the show notes at maccast.com. But basically, what PowerLink does is it allows you to use the power outlets in your house as a wired network connection you get these little adapters there's one or there's two of them usually in a kit and you plug one in by your router and then you hardwire an ethernet connection from your router into this box that's plugged into uh, your power outlet and then where you want to have the extension or the the other part of the connection you plug in the other adapter and that has ethernet ports in it as well you can plug ethernet into that and then plug ethernet into whatever device you want to connect and then you have a wired a fast wired connection running through your house but you're not having to run like ethernet cables so this is great if you don't have or don't want to run ethernet cables it's a really good option and for this particular uh, model, the power line runs at 1300 megabits per second. So it's pretty fast. And uh, what's neat about these units that uh, Rick is recommending is they also double as 802.11 AC Wi-Fi extenders. So they can run at up to 867 megabits per second on the 5 gigahertz band and up to 300 megabits per second on the 2.4 gigahertz band. So if you want both wired extension and Wi-Fi extension, this kind of resolves that. And the receiving unit actually has three gigabit Ethernet ports, so you can connect up to three hardwired devices on the other side. And then the other thing that I really liked about these, Rick, was that they have power socket pass-through. So there's actually a power outlet on the actual unit, because normally when you plug these in, they take up one of the power outlets in your house. This has a pass-through, so you don't even have to use up one of your power outlets, which is really, really nice. So neat product. I think they were about around 115 bucks US on Amazon. So great way to go. I mean, I've used uh, PowerLink products in my house before. Uh, I have a Orbi mesh router now, and that's solved a lot of my connectivity problems. But Wired is always more reliable, it's faster, and these things work great, and the technology has just gotten better and better. It's a great way to set up a second zone, too, so you can kind of bridge through power line, through a wired connection, from one zone in your house to another, and then connect, you know, via Ethernet, another base station or another Wi-Fi router, and set up a second zone in your house. And what's nice about that is the connection between your two Wi-Fi routers is actually wired and stable and reliable and fast and stuff like that. A lot of times, even though this has the extender built into it, the extenders, it's Wi-Fi, it can be flaky sometimes, although this although this does have MIMO 2x2, two two, I think, which is pretty good. So, you know, you'll have to play with it a little bit, but uh, great recommendation, Rick. Thank you for sending in that thing of the moment. Again, it's the TP-Link AV 1300 gigabit pass-through power line AC Wi-Fi kit 
I will have a link to it in the show notes at matcast.com because that is certainly a mouthful and you can check it out. But there's a lot of great uh, Powerline products out there. So a lot of different options, different brands and stuff like that. Uh, A lot of them are very good. So just in general, I think a great thing of the moment recommendation is Powerline as an option or or, or an alternative to just having to run Ethernet throughout your house. Um, So that was great. Thanks again, Rick. And uh, with that, that is going to do it for this episode of the MacCast. Before I leave you, I do want to thank my show sponsor, Smile Makers of Text Expander. You can check out Text Expander and get more information by visiting textexpander.com slash podcast. Bandwidth for the MacCast is provided by Cashfly. You can find them at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. And all advertising on the MacCast is handled by Backbeat Media. You can find them at backbeatmedia.com. As always, I love hearing from you. If you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on a future episode of the MacCast, please send your emails and audio comments to maccast at gmail.com. You're also welcome to call in on the listener hotline. That phone number is 281-622-4269, 281-MAC-IM-9, and you can leave a voicemail. And if you need show notes, links to anything I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you'll find those on the website. That's at maccast.com. And finally, if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash maccast. You can check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash the maccast or find me on Instagram, just maccast on Instagram. But that is going to do it for now. Until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon. (laughs) 